Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Well, we're turning to God's Word this morning, and I encourage you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. Last week, we opened this series on Judges by looking at Judges chapter 1, where we saw a tale of declining obedience. We saw in Judges 1 how the, the tribe of Judah began well, largely obeying the Lord, although they did fail to drive out uh, the, the Canaanites in the plains. Then we saw Benjamin. Benjamin left the Jebusites in Jerusalem. And then we went tribe by tribe and saw this increasing failure to obey the Lord and to drive out the nations as he had commanded. But if you were to reflect on Judges chapter 1, it was really a very straightforward narrative. We just got the plain old facts. It didn't really answer the questions that we have when we read a story like this. Questions like, well, what are the consequences of Israel's disobedience? How is the Lord going to respond? What is God thinking about what's happening here? Will Israel repent? Is there, is there any hope of reclaiming their wholehearted declaration, we will serve the Lord from the end of Joshua? Those, those are the questions that are on our minds and our hearts when we read a story like this showing us disobedience. And those are the questions that we bring to Judges chapter 2, where we begin to get answers to these questions. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to have them open. Follow along. Let's read verses 1. I'm going to read through verse 13, actually, this morning in Judges chapter 2. Here's God's word. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bachim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. And brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You, you shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods will be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of the place Bachim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of inheritance of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gaash. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and serve the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. This is the Lord's word. Let's pray together. God, this is a sobering word that we read this morning, but we know it is your word that you've given us as a warning, as a summary the way sin tugs at our hearts, and so we pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would draw us near to yourself this morning for the sake of your name. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. As a, a parent, I would be more than happy to pass all of my excellent tastes and opinions down to my children, and yet it just doesn't seem like it happens that way. You know, so far, I'm not so successful in a number of areas. My my music preferences, my musical preferences largely rely on the great Renaissance, Baroque, and classical composers. And yet my oldest daughter told me the other day, she said, you know, if you can't sing along with the lyrics, it's not really worth listening to. (laughs) All right. Okay. Now, when it comes to food, I think Brussels sprouts are fantastic and that chocolate's disgusting. So far, I'm one for five in passing down those tastes to my children. And the list could go on because apparently there's just no guarantee that your kids are going to do things like you do them. And really, in a lot of ways, that's fantastic when it comes to the variety and the beauty and diversity of gifts and delights within a family and community. I'm very glad that my kids are not just like me. But this also brings us to a question of spiritual urgency. Because each of us is responsible to pass down the knowledge of the Lord and of His salvation to the next generation. And as we step into Judges chapter 2, we find this urgency on clear display. I think if we were to summarize the main point of Judges chapter 2, we could say it this way. This passage is calling us to spiritual vigilance, both for ourselves and for the next generation. We find the call to our own spiritual vigilance in verses 1 through 5, where the Lord gives his assessment of what happened back in chapter 1. In verse 1, we meet the angel of the Lord. Now, just as a brief reminder, the angel of the Lord is a a character we see often in the Old Testament, and the angel of the Lord is very different than an angel from the Lord. The angel of the Lord does not come and say, God says. The angel of the Lord comes and says, I say. Unlike other angels, the angel of the Lord accepts worship and declares that the ground around him is holy, like God does. And so we believe that the angel of the Lord is not a random angel or messenger, but is actually the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, the Word of God, showing up before his incarnation to bring the word of the Lord to God's people. And here, when we find ourselves in verse 1, we find the angel of the Lord marching up the road from Gilgal to the people of Israel. And this is very significant because if you were to turn back to the book of Joshua, you would find that Gilgal was the first place that Israel camped when they passed over the Jordan River. And you would find that it was at Gilgal that Joshua took 12 stones from the Jordan riverbed and set them up as a monument. And Joshua said, when your children ask you in years to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, 
Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, so that all the people on the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Gilgal was this place of the monument to God's faithfulness in God's work on Israel's behalf, and the place that was supposed to remind Israel from one generation to the next to fear the Lord. And it is from that place that the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to the people of Israel and says, I told you that I would never break my covenant with you. But I also told you not to make a covenant with the people of this land and that you should break down their altars and you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you've done? Now I think if we are to pause there and and listen to God's word, we should note a very significant difference between how Israel talked about their actions in chapter 1 and how God is talking about their actions here in chapter 2. In chapter 1, it at least appeared that the Israelites thought that they were in pretty good place. They'd driven out many of the Canaanites. They'd inherited much of the land. Of course, they hadn't gotten everything taken care of, but they'd done everything they could. And the issue, and if you go back and look at at the wording specifically in several places, the issue was that they couldn't drive out the iron chariots or the Amorites or these people who were very determined. But God says, it's not that you couldn't drive them out, it's that you wouldn't drive them out. The issue is that you have not obeyed my voice. You did what was best, seemed best to you, but you failed to love me, to trust me in my strength and my promises, and therefore you failed to obey me. And this is an important message for us to hear, I think. Tim Keller argues that we too are often in danger of masking our disobedience by claiming that we can't. He says there's a number of ways we might do it. God commands us to forgive those who have hurt us as God through Christ has forgiven us. And yet, how often do we look at our hurt and say, I can't forgive them? In the face of certain temptations, we say, I can't resist. And while, of course, sin does have an addictive power, and it may be true at some point that we can't resist through our willpower alone, we need help, we know that God has promised that we will not be tempted beyond what we can bear. Or we say things like, I can't live like that, when the that is something that God's Word calls us to. And so we desperately need each other to encourage us and to hold us accountable Because Keller's admonition to us is watch out, be vigilant, lest Israel's justification of their sin become true of us and we say we can't when the issue is actually that we won't. But the Lord doesn't just reveal Israel's disobedience here. He also reminds Israel of what else he had told them back in Deuteronomy and Joshua. He reminds them of the consequences that would come if they did sin against him. There you see it in verse 3. He says, I now say, and the wording actually is probably more like, and I also have said, I will not drive out the nations before you, but they shall become thorns in your side and their gods will become a snare to you. So Israel is now confronted with the consequences of their apathy. If they do not obey the Lord as they have not, the Lord had said these people would be a snare to them. 
And here in these verses, we have introduced for us what I think is the central tension of the book of Judges. It's a tension that I want us to watch play out over these chapters. It's actually a tension, though, that goes far beyond Judges. It's the tension that is at the heart of the entire Old Testament and drives us through the Old Testament all the way to the cross of Christ. The tension is this. God had promised that He would never break His covenant with His people. But He had also promised not to give the land to a disobedient people. And so given the people's sins, what will God do? How will He fulfill His promises, both of His promises, to a sinful people? And that's the tension we'll see in Judges and the tension that drives us all the way to the cross of Jesus, where God in His divine wisdom both fulfills His promise to judge sin and yet also fulfills His promise to His people to give life and salvation and blessing. But that resolution is years to come right now when we find ourselves in Judges chapter 2. Right now, Israel is faced with the consequences of their sin. And you see there in verse 4 that the people are cut to the heart. They weep over the Lord's Word and they offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And there is some debate here over whether this is genuine repentance for their sin or whether this is just weeping over the consequences of their sin. And the text really doesn't give us uh, enough information to know for sure. But I do think personally that there is a measure of genuine repentance here. This, after all, is the generation of Joshua who inquired of the Lord. They had seen the Lord's work on their behalf. They recognized the consequences of their disobedience and the fulfillment of God's word to them. But the question is, even if there is a measure of genuine repentance, what will be the long-term effect? Will Israel cling to the Lord? Or will the thorns and the snares get the better of them? And those are the questions that should be on our minds as we come to the end of verse 5. And the narrator of Judges doesn't leave us in suspense for long. He immediately, starting in verse 6, gives us a spiritual biography of Israel. And he starts with the death of Joshua. And if you're saying in your mind, wait a second, Joshua already died back at the beginning of chapter 1, you're right. What the narrator's doing is he's reaching back to give us a generational spiritual biography. He's saying, what happened spiritually to Israel from the death of Joshua and the fellow elders down to the next generation? And so as he does that, we find that Joshua followed the Lord. And it says that the elders of his generation, while they were alive, Israel also served the Lord. We know it wasn't perfect obedience, of course. Israel had made a covenant with the Gibeonites in Joshua 9. Judges 1 was carried out by this generation and their obedience was incomplete. But they did serve the Lord while they were alive. But then verse 10 tells us another generation arose after them. And this generation is described as a generation that did not know the Lord or the works that He had done for Israel. God's people are always just one generation away from apostasy. Which is why God had emphasized over and over and over again the importance of passing down the knowledge of the Lord to the next generation. Exodus 12, 25 tells us that the Passover was to be an opportunity for Israel to declare God's salvation to the next generation. To remember 
The salvation from Egypt, as the children would ask, what do you mean by this service? Deuteronomy 4, 9 and 10 instructs Israel to remember the awesome majesty of God, to keep their soul diligently, to not forget what they had seen from God, and to make it known to their children and to their children's children so that they may learn to fear the Lord and then teach their children. You see the pattern. And I think when, sometimes we look back at the Old Testament and we think, well, wow, that was amazing. God was always doing these incredible things. You know, the people back then, they got to hear God's voice and see God work. Well, that's true at some points. But in between the mighty acts of God were hundreds of years. And Israel, if they were going to be faithful, were going to have to pass down the knowledge of the Lord from one generation to the next. Deuteronomy 6 adds to it as well. God urged Israel to love Him with all their heart, soul, and might, to keep His words on their heart, to teach them diligently to their children, to talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you get up. And so over and over again, God's Word describes this twofold spiritual responsibility. Be, be vigilant to remember and love the Lord your God yourselves, and then be diligent to teach the knowledge of the Lord to your children. And that is what Israel did not do. But I think it's important for us to understand exactly what Israel did not do here. If you look at verse 10 carefully and read the words, you'll note that it does not say the next generation did not know about the Lord. Most, I think, probably had heard about the miracles God had done back in the day. But they were just stories of what God had done back in the day. What they didn't know is they didn't know the Lord. It's like the difference between maybe the first generation of men who actually fought on the beaches of Normandy or at the Battle of the Bulge. And students today who are just cramming the names of the beaches into their heads for a history quiz. The question for Israel is not whether they had heard the stories about what God had done. The question was whether the God of those stories was also their God. Whether they knew the God who had saved them and their people. And it is that knowledge of God and His salvation that the next generation did not know. And we see the consequences of this right away. You see verses 11 through 13. The people of Israel, it says, abandoned the Lord and they did what was evil in His sight. In the course of one generation, Israel had gone from knowing the Lord and obeying Him at least partially to abandoning the Lord and trading Him in for the gods of the Canaanites, Baals, and Ashtaroth. And so verses 11 through 13 answer the questions that we had back in verse 5. Will the Canaanites and their gods ensnare the hearts of Israel? And the answer is a resounding yes. Just as God had said would happen if they let wickedness hang around. And if we've read Deuteronomy and Joshua, we come to verse 13 and the totality of this wickedness and the conclusion is obvious. Because God is just and faithful. He must bring on Israel all the curses that He had said He would send for their disobedience. And the question is really just how is the Lord going to bring this about in the pages to come? And so we see the consequences of a next generation not knowing the Lord. But of course, the reality is that after 3,000 years from the time of the judges to our time, the nature of our hearts and the nature of sin is not all that different. 
The same temptations that faced Israel all these years ago face us as well. And so I want to take our remaining time to see three things that God's Word presses on our hearts from this passage this morning. First, this passage shows us the importance of knowing the Lord. See, surveys tell us that most people in America believe in God. They believe God exists, that is. And many know the main stories from Sunday school. Many of us could probably add to that. Many of us could probably even quote some of the questions from the shorter catechism. And while these things are good, they are means the Lord has given us for good things, God does not want us to know facts or to think that He exists. He wants us to know Him. In fact, God sent His only Son, Jesus, to live, to die, and to rise again so that we might know Him. That's what He says in John chapter 17, that the salvation that we have is to know Jesus and His Father who sent Him. A few weeks ago, I sat with a man in my office. He's a a firm believer in Christ, and he was sharing with me his testimony. He said, you know, when I was growing up, I went to church every Sunday. I went to church every Sunday because my mother told me if I don't go to church, I don't get breakfast. And he said, so I knew all the stories from Sunday school. I knew all about God, but that's all it was, stories. Until he was in his 20s one day, a man came to him and asked him a question that changed his life. The man said to him, I know you have heard about Jesus, but do you know Jesus personally? Jesus, he said, was always a story. It was even a true story. But now he came to see that Jesus had died for him, to save him, and to make him his child, that he might know Jesus himself. And I think this is such an important reminder for each one of us. For those of you who are students growing up in a Christian home, perhaps you're even required to come to church. This is the crucial question for you. Do you know these stories? Maybe do you even think they're true stories? Maybe even you assume you're a Christian because you come to church? Or do you know Jesus? Have you seen His great acts of salvation for you? Do you see your need of Him and have you received Him as your Savior? The desire of your heart and the Lord of your life. For all of us, Maybe for those who have been Christians for years, do you see your daily routines still as an act aimed at knowing God better? Theologian D.A. Carson writes that many of us read the Bible but find it easy to fall into the habit of just moving the bookmark forward, finishing the reading plan. And he asks this, he says, has our Bible reading brought us nearer to the Lord? Because preserving his testimonies does not mean reading them and putting them in the freezer. It means finding them a succulent meal whereby we feed on his word. For the Lord's intention is that his word would lead us to himself, that we might know him. Tara Lee Cobble, the host of the Bible Recap, puts it this way. She says, each time we read God's word, we find a fresh reason to affirm that he is where our joy is. So do we know the Lord? That's the first thing this text presses on us. Second, this passage presses on us the importance of passing down the knowledge of the Lord to the next generation. 
No passage in Scripture, I think, summarizes the urgency of passing down the knowledge of the Lord to the next generation better than Psalm 78, where the psalmist declares, I will utter dark sayings from of old, things we have heard and known that our fathers have taught us. We will not hide them from our children, but will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Now, for parents right now in the trenches of raising our children, Tim Keller argues that it's all too easy for us as Christian parents to try to act morally, bring our kids to church, and teach them right doctrine, and assume our job is done. Instead, he argues what we need is to love God with our whole hearts according to His Word, and then to be warmly personal about our faith, sharing our experience of God's goodness and salvation, and talking about how God and His Word and His salvation shape us in the situations of our daily lives. That's what it means to talk about God's Word when we sit down and when we rise up and when we walk along the way. Of course, this urgency comes with a word of caution for both parents and for children. Parents, we need to remember that the Bible commands us to teach our children the knowledge of the Lord, but it gives us no formula for making them Christians. Some of the most faithful parents I know have children who have wandered from the Lord and rejected Him. Many of you, even in this room, know the grief of children whom you pointed to Christ only to see them go another way. But the job of Christian parents is not to convert their children. That is impossible. Only God can do that. The job of the Christian parent is to faithfully talk of the Lord and of His Word and of His salvation and then to pray diligently and consistently for God's Spirit to work in their hearts. From there, we leave the results to Him in His time, trusting His character with our children. But for kids, there's a warning for you in this passage as well. Your job is not to evaluate how good of a job your parents are doing at raising you in the Lord. You may feel like they're doing a great job, or you may feel like they're doing a really terrible job, and you wouldn't do it that way at all. But that's not the question for you. The question for you is, what will you do with the Word of God you have heard? God has acted in history. He has died on the cross to take the penalty for our sins. He has risen again to offer you new life and the joy of salvation in Christ. The question for you is, will you receive that salvation? I would urge you to come to Christ, to seek Him, and to submit to Him with your whole heart, that you might not find yourselves as a repeat of Judges 2, as a new generation that arises who knows plenty about God, but does not know the Lord and His salvation for you. Well, finally, Judges, I think, gives us a third thing that presses our hearts, and it's a warning. The warning of Judges 2 is that very rarely does someone wake up, roll out of bed one morning, and decide they're done with God. There is a well-worn path that we follow to abandoning God, and we see that path in our text. The past starts with complacency. It often includes slowly slipping from godly habits or allowing small sins a place in our hearts. 
That's what happened to Israel in Judges chapter 1. They obeyed God in a lot of things, but there was complacency. They did not obey Him completely. Perhaps we fall out of the habit of reading God's Word, or we find very reasonable excuses for not coming to worship on Sunday mornings. And then we become comfortable with these routines and complacent. Or maybe we allow a root of anger against just one person, or some judgmentalism to keep its hold against one situation. Or we feel that you know, some issues with pornography or another sin are understandable and not that big of a deal. And complacency rather than spiritual vigilance to seek the Lord and obey Him sets in. That's what happened to Israel in Judges 1. And complacency is the first step down the path to abandoning the Lord. The second step is compromise. Having become complacent, we then are willing to compromise. This is when we still fully affirm that we believe in God, but we adopt the world's perspective and definitions on key issues in life. You can imagine how it might have played out for Israel, can't you? You've got an Israelite there hanging out at the, at the well uh, next to a Canaanite laborer, and, and they strike up conversation, and, and the Canaanite says, Oh yes, it's great how Yahweh saved you guys a hundred years ago. And maybe Yahweh did give you bread in the desert when you were there, but, but that was then. This is 11th century Canaan, man. Get with the program. If you're going to be here and have a successful life that makes sense among us, you're going to need Baal and Ashtaroth for that. And so Israel compromises. And they say, well, we'll keep, we'll keep believing in Yahweh, but we need Baal and Ashtaroth too if we're going to get along here in Canaan. And today, of course, we can do the same thing. We say, well, of course I believe in God. But then we adopt the world's definitions and assumptions about sexuality, about freedom, about self-expression, and what our culture in 21st century America says about life and how to act in a way that's good and appropriate today. And we think, look, if I'm going to get along here in 21st century America, I'm fine to believe in God, but I also need to adopt these perspectives. And what we've found is compromise. And when we compromise, we find ourselves maybe affirming we believe in God, but then at odds with much of what God says. And when we find ourselves at odds with what God says, even when we still say we believe in Him, we will feel a growing distance from God and a growing distrust in His Word. And here's the rub. Once we adopt the world's definitions, assumptions, and expectations, whether it's on love or, or self-expression or justice or anything else, God's Word will soon seem either irrelevant or irrational. One of the two. And the next step is capitulation. If He is irrelevant or irrational, then we abandon Him altogether. To abandon the Lord, the God of our fathers, and go after the gods of our culture instead. And once we abandon the Lord our God and live according to the ideas and expectations of our culture, we're right where Israel found themselves in verses 11 through 13, doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God's Word gives us this path, complacency, compromise, capitulation. This is the road and its marks on the path to abandoning the Lord. You know, in so many ways, sin has not changed. We face the same temptations that Israel faced. But God in His mercy has given us two things. We see them both here. He's given us judges 
which clearly shows this path and its consequences. God has mercifully given us this flashing warning sign that says, road closed, bridge out, don't go this way, stop, turn around, repent. And so may we hear God's mercy in his word and listen to him. The second thing, of course, is not in this passage, but it's pointed to by this passage. God knows our sin, and he has done something about it. Because from our vantage point now, we look back and can see that he has given us Jesus, who died to take the just anger of God that we deserve and to give us his righteousness and his life and his adoption and to welcome us into his presence. He has given us his spirit to change our hearts that we might know the Lord and seek him with our whole heart and obey his word instead. And that is the call of this passage. So may we this morning run to him and trust him that we might know the Lord and the joy of his salvation and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this word, this passage in scripture that you've given us as a a warning sign to us. May we not become aware of our sin when we get all the way to the step of abandoning God. May you show us if there is complacency in our hearts towards you, if there is compromise with your truth and with your word. And may we be quick to repent and run back to you, our God and our King. And oh, Father, how we thank you for Jesus. He is our hope. He is our all. Would you call our hearts not just to know about him, not even just to think that it's a true story about what he did, but to know him personally, to see his death and resurrection is for me and to receive it and to rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.